still. And here's why. It's a book that really encourages a deeper discipleship. This is what Paul wanted for the Thessalonian church and for its members. He basically wrote this letter to them in the first instance to say to them, you're doing well. It's a real letter of encouragement for them. But throughout the letter, as we'll see in the coming weeks and months, um, he, he urges them not to rest on their laurels. He urges them to, to, to press on in their discipleship, in their walk with the Lord God. In fact, sometimes you'll find that he sounds a little bit like a, a motivational kind of personal trainer type thing. He's, he's appealing for more and more. And when he's talking about their sanctification and their growth in Christ-likeness, he wants it. He, he says it's through and through. So he's urging them on. And that's why we've called the series further still. And that's exactly what I hope will happen as we walk through this book together. I hope it will help us identify evidence of God's work in our church family. The letter does that. It will encourage us to do that, and we ought to do that. But I hope it also spurs us on to a deeper discipleship. Now, to understand the letter, uh, you, and even to understand chapter 1, uh, you really need to understand something of the back story. Paul planted this church as part of his second missionary tour. Uh, this was the second of a five-stop uh, tour. And before this, there was no church in Thessalonica. He and his team essentially arrived, engaged with the Jews first, then the Greeks. And as we read in Acts chapter 17, uh, a small number of people became Christians. Now, what Paul often did whenever he planted a church like this was to stick around for a while, to teach them and train them a bit more of this faith that they have just taken hold of gladly. And he would teach them about what it means not just to believe the doctrine of the church, but what it means to actually be a church, how it functions. The thing about this church in Thessalonica is he was denied that opportunity with them. You can read in Acts chapter 17 that when Paul came and preached the gospel, he actually had the city in an uproar. The report in Acts 17 is that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Uh, how true that was going to prove to be as the gospel uh, spread throughout the nations. But these people who are objecting to Paul and to the gospel that he's proclaiming are saying this guy is proclaiming a someone else, another king called Jesus. Now, the result of this uproar was that Paul and his planting team were driven out of the city. Now, some would say that was only after three or four weeks. At the most, folks would say, that researchers and theologians would just say, it's probably, he was probably with them three months at the most. In any case, whether it's four weeks or 12 weeks, that is not a long time. It's not enough time for Paul to feel like he's properly established this church. When you think of planting a church like this seed analogy, it's like he's planted the seeds. God has caused it to grow. At this point, the, 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 the first little shoot is just poking through the soil, and then they're driven out. No gardener there to tend to that little shoot, to, to look after it, to make sure it's cultivated, and to encourage its growth. In fact, Paul is scared. He's anxious in a sense that the hate mob that had forced him out of the city were turning on the Thessalonians. It turns out, as we'll see in the letter, that that was the case. And they were in danger of having this life, this new life trampled out of them in no time at all. 
In chapter 3, verse 5, actually, of this letter, Paul says that he thought the persecution might cause them to give up what they had believed. But he sees them, and he sees that he wants them to grow, and so does something about it. What does he do? Well, he tried to get back to them himself a number of times, but there were obstacles in the way. Chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that. But in the end, what he chose to do was to send his apprentice, Timothy, back on some kind of reconnaissance mission. Timothy was sent to go and find out, I want a spiritual report. I want a health check on these guys. How are they doing in their faith? What's the church like? Is it growing at all? What are some of the things that we need to do to try and help them? Certainly, how can we be praying for them? So Timothy goes, scopes out the situation, and comes back to Paul with this amazing news. It's like he comes back and says, wow, Paul, they are amazing. God is amazing. What he is doing in this little church, it's like they've not needed us. It's like they've been taught by God himself how to love one another, how to function together as a church family. They are a great encouragement. And I always imagine Paul, well, I kind of imagine Timothy bursting through the door with this excited expression of delight at what's happening. And Paul's like, where's my pen? Where's my pen? I need to write. You know, so there's Paul straight away, gets out the MacBook, starts writing this letter to the Thessalonians. He is thrilled, thrilled to hear what God is doing in them. So what does he say to him in this letter? Well, let's read from chapter 1. We're going to read the first chapter, but I'm only going to deal with first three verses tonight. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia, that's in the north, Achaia, that's in the south. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen. Uh, this is God's word. Well, I think chapter one of the book of First Thessalonians has to be one of the most helpful passages in the Bible on the subject of conversion. In every church family, uh, you've maybe met them, you maybe are one, there are people who will question the authenticity of their own conversion. They'll ask, am I really a Christian? Am I genuinely saved? How can I really know? Is assurance even something that's possible? And people struggle with doubts of all kinds. 
And maybe you find people often who have prayed something like the sinner's prayer, a prayer of repentance, you know, like just a hundred times, just to make sure in a sense, but only to find that they continually lack certainty. At the same time, though, there are also people in churches who question the authenticity of someone else's conversion. Uh, Maybe you have shared the gospel with someone, and they have said that they believe it, uh, but you're not quite sure. In fact, you're even a little bit hesitant to say you're not quite sure because you're not quite sure that you should be unsure, if you know what I mean. What are the reasons for being sure? Can you be sure? I don't think I've ever said so many sure so many times in all my life, but never mind. Squeezed it all into a few sentences. Well, maybe someone comes along to church also claiming they're Christians from another church. How do we know? Well, 1 Thessalonians, I think, I think helps us a lot. And what's surprising for us about verses 1 to 3 in particular, then notice this, is that assurance isn't really grounded in what a person says with their own mouth, but really in what we see in each other. It can be identified, and this is why a local church family and belonging to one is so crucial. From what Paul saw when he first planted this church, and from what Paul, what Timothy has seen when he went on this reconnaissance mission, he sees tangibly there are signs of life in this Thessalonian church, not just in the individuals, but in the group as a whole, and that's what he thanks God for. I want to look at two points tonight, um, vital signs, first of all, and vital practice. The first one is lengthy, okay? Not like three hours long, but a lot longer in comparison to the second point, just to give you a heads up. So, vital signs. What does Paul see? Look with me again at verse 3. He says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this, but in medicine, there are four vital signs of life that are routinely monitored, and especially so in emergency situations. Heart rate, respirations, uh, temperature, blood pressure. Those four vital signs, in essence, show that someone is really alive, and, but they also provide some critical information needed to make some life, life-saving decisions. You know, they determine really what kind of treatment that you will offer Um, straight away, uh, and offer a measuring tool really to know whether or not your treatment is effective. Now, that's an important thing because there's no point um, stitching up a small cut on a man's leg if his blood pressure is in his boots, for example. These vital signs are important. There are four of them in medicine. I think what Paul offers us here in the first instance is that in relation to our spiritual life, there are three, faith, love, and hope. Now, the presence of these three vital signs are, according to the Protestant reformer John Calvin, a brief definition of true Christianity. And that's right, because the gospel, when believed, produces typically these three things. But the thing that we see in this passage is that these three things are not some, they're not just abstract qualities. They they work something out. They're productive in a sense. They have concrete practical outcomes, producing something that can be seen by others. So what is faith? Let's start with that. Faith is 
Well, we heard a lot about that this morning in Adam's brilliant sermon, but faith is taking God as word and living like you believe that it's true. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is one of the clearest definitions of faith in the Bible. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. It's trusting God for everything that he has said. It's looking back at his impeccable track record and walking forward believing that he will never renege or turn back on any of his promises for the future. What he has said, he will do. Now, the Thessalonians had a faith that was tangible uh, to Paul and to Timothy. Tangible in the first instance in those initial few weeks and tangible in Timothy's report. But in what ways? In what ways was their faith concrete and apparent? Well, Paul's letter contains various hints. We're not told explicitly, but there are many hints. And maybe in mission, we saw later on in this chapter in particular, we know that God has promised to take the gospel to all nations. And these guys who are facing some kind of persecution might well have had a silo mentality. They might have thought, let's dig in. The persecution's pretty fierce. I'm not really sure how I'm going to eat. But no, it is absolutely incredible what we read later on in that first chapter, isn't it? That the gospel from this little infant Thessalonian church has spread beyond the borders of their own town. It's gone north. It's gone south. Paul would even use the word everywhere to describe the spreading out of the gospel from that epicenter of Thessalonica. That is absolutely astounding. It's incredible. So they are taking God at his word in relation to the gospel crossing borders. We see their faith outworked in their evangelism. In suffering as well, God promises to preserve and even bless his children when they face persecution. It's not something that you should shrink back from, but indeed as you endure it, you can expect to be blessed in doing so. There is even, as James points out, a particular and peculiar joy that's known by people like us, by Christians, who end up suffering because they profess faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here. These guys are not jumping ship in Thessalonica. They are believing the gospel and they are holding fast to that belief. There's just a couple of examples for us where the faith that they profess with their mouth is evident in what is seen in their lives. And I think there's a principle here for us that truly the presence of God-given faith will produce God-glorifying activity. Tangible, concrete, productive results. Now the question is, is this vital sign evident in our own church family? Do we live with that kind of faith as a group of believers covenanting together in Christ? Do you see this kind of faith in one another? Do you see the presence of God-glorifying activity in one another's lives that is the result of a person's deeply held faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you preach a sermon like this, it causes you at various points to sit back in your chair and reflect and to think about it, to think about the evidence that you see. And many times this 
I could think of many things, even in a short period of time this week, where there has been evidence of real faith. Similar to the Thessalonians, those who have the faith to take God at his word in relation to mission or in relation to his presence and his support in times of suffering, and people have believed and continued believing. They've taken God at his word and acted. And we ought to do this. And what we'll see in this letter is Paul encouraging us to do it more and more. In James 2.20, we're reminded of how important this is, actually, when we read that faith without deeds is useless. It's not worth anything. In fact, if you say you have faith, but your life shows no evidence to back up that claim, James 2 actually warns us that we may not have saving faith at all. And yet saving faith is exactly what Paul sees in the Thessalonians. He doesn't just see faith, of course, he sees love. If true faith works, what does true love do? Well, love lays itself down. Faith, if you like, works in this Godward direction. Love, in this instance, I think is more directed towards others, though of course we love God's. But Paul sees this in the Thessalonian church family. And the reason why I think it's directed towards others is because of what we see throughout the letter. For example, in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you. What an incredible thing, again, to say to them. How often do you read that in one of Paul's letters? An accolade of, of that type. He says, God himself has clearly taught you, even in our absence. You know, we didn't sit down and instruct you with this. We didn't open up the relevant passages to you and explain how important brotherly love is in the life of a local church. He said, God himself has taught you what love is because the love you're showing each other is exceptional. Now, again, we can ask the question of ourselves. Has God showed his love among us? How has God done that? Well, he has sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's how we know what love is. That's how we know that love in its nature is self-sacrificial. Love lays itself down. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sets the pattern. The Thessalonians were following it, and with real vigor too. And we ought to too. Now the word for labor, it's a love that labors here. It's different to the word, different to the word describing their faith. Um, there's blood, sweat, and tears in the love that they're showing. They're straining themselves to love others. And again, Paul sees this as a very important mark of the genuineness of their faith. And again, a principle emerges. The extent to which we spend ourselves in loving service of others is, if you like, another vital sign of conversion. And again, sitting back in the chair, reflecting on it even now, is this vital sign evident in our church family? Can we think of and recall moments or instances where we have seen love shown to another in this church family? Again, I can only encourage you to take time to do this this past week. It won't take long before you're if you like doing as the song says, and just counting your blessings, you're realizing just how often this kind of tangible love takes place in our fellowship, whether it's dealing with someone who is struggling with sin or in their faith, or whether it's someone who has gone through a bereavement. When you see practical love expressed, 
whether it's just someone spending time with another, more so than they would normally do in a certain situation, uh, going to great lengths to serve them in a particular way. Like We ought to do that kind of thing, reflect on that kind of thing regularly, call those things to mind, and truly give thanks to God. I was encouraged, again, even by what I was able to bring to mind in that brief recollection this week. And we ought to thank God for that. That's his work, his activity in us. But I think as we will find in the book of 1 Thessalonians is that God is encouraging us as to whether or not we ought to take that up a level. Do it more and more. Let's not rest on our laurels. Let's not rest easy. We know in ourselves how selfish we can be. We know how prone we are to love ourselves more than others. Well, the gospel calls us again and again in love, just like Jesus did, to lay down our wants, our preferences, and serve one another in love. We can go further in demonstrating it. Hebrews 10 actually encourages us to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. When was the last time we took time to think about that? How should I show love and good deeds? Maybe to my closest neighbors, to my family. How can I show love and good deeds to them? How can I show love and good deeds to my brothers and sisters in Charlotte Chapel? Maybe the people in my growth group, my small group, something like that. There are practical ways that we can demonstrate that. And Jesus said just how important it is, not just for the deepening of our relationships and the strengthening of our bonds of love together, it's actually crucial for our mission. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That helps us understand just why we ought to think and pray hard as a church family as to how we can grow more in displaying this vital sign, doesn't it? It's a challenge to us. So let's thank God for all the evidences we see, but let's do it more and more. And what about hope? If true faith works and true love lays itself down, what does hope do? Well, hope, in a sense, hangs on. That's the sense you get when we read about the endurance that Paul sees tangibly in this Thessalonian church family. Paul knows that these baby Christians have been under the cosh. In Acts 17, when the hate mob couldn't find Paul, they dragged their host Jason before the authorities, and the authorities really turned up the heat. They were going to ruin him and others if they did not get rid of this Paul and forget about their faith. But they endured hardship for what they believed because they had hope. Now, hope in itself is much like faith, but where faith, in a sense, looks back and acts in accordance with God's faithfulness, hope looks forward to the promise of what's to come. And there is no question in this letter that the Thessalonian church are clinging with great delight to the prospect of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The prospect of a final day of judgment for their enemies and the prospect of a final day of liberation from their sin into the new heaven and new earth is just thrilling to them. 
In fact, Paul has to write in his letter, in this letter and in 2 Thessalonians, to try and encourage some of those people who are, who are falling into idleness. And the sense you get is that they're kind of just, they're waiting just a little bit too eagerly for Jesus. And it's, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're just shutting up their shop. They're not trading. You know, they're, they're selling their stuff on eBay and they're just looking up into the sky waiting for Jesus to come back. And Paul says, I love your enthusiasm, top notch, but let's Let's just don't be idle. Let's go about our business. Don't be too dependent on other people. You've got to provide for yourself. But he never says anything that takes away from the fact that every single believer in that church and in this one ought to live their lives in light of the return of Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees this in them. That's why hope is a vital sign of true Christianity. Do we see it in our church family? I thought about the things, some of the things that might make a person feel like calling time on the Christian faith. You know, where hope would wane or people might be tempted to give up. And it's not hard to come up with situation after situation. In fact, even member after member in our own church family who have endured hardships of their own and still do and yet cling to their faith with with a great joy it's a remarkable thing some have suffered in their body some have crippling anxiety some wrestle with doubt Many have known the hardships of bereavement, loneliness, loss of a child. Some have been ostracized by their family, treated like they didn't exist. And when you meet these people, as you do, week in, week out, when you study the Bible alongside these brothers and sisters, when you know something of what they've gone through and you experience the love and the care that they are desperate to show you, you cannot help but be amazed at the endurance that the Lord our God has given them through such hardships. You cannot help but be amazed at the great hope and the way that hope spurs us on in the day-to-day work of following Jesus. And something tells me we're going to have to keep on helping each other endure hardship. Live long enough, said Don Carson, and you will suffer. It's true. Life is hard. In fact, in Acts 14, Paul tells him, uh, himself visits churches that he had planted on his first missionary tour. And you read in verse 22 of that passage that he was strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The same is true today. What trials will we face? We don't know. What we do know is that true believers demonstrate a constant activity in the face of adversity. Again, demonstrating this peculiar joy in the midst of it. Not that they're happy about what's happening to them. They would far rather that it wasn't. But they're happy at what it's achieving, according to 2 Corinthians, an eternal glory that far outweighs any hardship that is theirs.
So how can we encourage each other to not only cling to Jesus in these types of times, but keep going further still, deeper into our discipleship, further into the darkness on mission, functioning in all the ways that we ought to be functioning as believers. Thoughts of our destination, just like them, living in light of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love flying, but I'm not really a big fan of flying with children, <laughs> okay? And uh, two of mine are here tonight. Now, a few years ago, my wife and I took our family on holiday to Florida, and my son was just nine months old at the time. And uh, he spent the whole flight in my arms as I spent the whole flight, you know, in that little bit where the stewards and stewardesses are preparing everyone's drinks and so on. That was like the only place that I could stand. And I'm pretty sure they elbowed me a few times just to try and get me out of the way. But it was a terrible flight. You know, what is it in that particular moment that stops me from grabbing a parachute and bailing out halfway over the Atlantic? It's not just, you know, thoughts that I might miss the Azores and end up in the sea. It's thoughts of the destination, isn't it? It's where we're going this is going to be worth it in the end. And the same is true, despite that odd illustration, of the Christian faith. Thoughts of our destination, of where we're headed, is the very thing that strengthens the weakness that we might feel and helps the hands of faith to cling tighter onto Jesus and in faith take hold of those promises and keep on going that there is nothing better than what we believe. There is nothing better than what we receive. Our life is entirely tied up with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no one and nowhere else that we would rather go. So that's how we can encourage one another. Jesus is coming back. One day it'll all be over. Faith gives way to sight. Sin dissolves forever. Hope itself will actually be gone for who hopes for what he already has. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, um, and maybe you're quite honest about that, you, you don't have that hope. And the Bible says that only those who are, as Paul describes in, at the start of this letter, only those who are in God, if you like, in Christ, safe in him, through faith in Jesus Christ, have that hope and enjoy that certainty, that assurance. Those who don't take him at his word, those who don't love him and put their hope in him, the Bible says will be put to shame when he comes. But that can change for you. And our prayer is that God may open your eyes to understand through the explanation of the word of God, who Christ is and what he's done through his death on the cross. He paid the price for our sin. He made it possible that we might have life in his name and that we who do believe in him might have faith and hope and love as typical facets of Christian character and hope of eternity with him. 
There's a prayer team down the front after the service, and they'd be glad to chat to you about this. I'll be at the door for about five, ten minutes afterwards as well. Come and chat to me about it. I'd love to talk to you about this and help you see how important this is. And brothers and sisters, if you struggle to know whether you're really a Christian, it is really important that you see something crucial in this passage. Identifying the evidence of true conversion on your own is very, very difficult. Most are prone to discouragement and self-condemnation. Most only see their failures and are strangely blind to the successes that God works in people. This is why we need each other. God has given us each other in a local church family to help us see ourselves accurately. And I think one of the reasons people struggle with this lack of assurance is that they might just be keeping the local church family at arm's length. We can do that by not spending time with each other. But I'll tell you another way we can do that. We can do that by being a closed shop whenever we get together particularly in our small group settings. Small groups that are purposefully designed for us to be open about one another's struggles and opportunities to share in these kind of things with each other. If we keep one another at arm's length, then we will maintain superficiality in our relationships and lose something of the assurance that can come through a group like that. It ought to be the case that we regularly say to one another, can I just say, I want, I've been thanking God for you recently. Because about four months ago, I don't know if you remember this, but we were praying particularly about this thing that you were struggling with. You were really angry about this and you didn't quite know how to deal with it. And we talked about it and there was something sinful in your response. Do you know what? I've not seen you do any of that recently. And the person might say, well, do you know what? Actually, I really feel that God has helped me in this particular area. I've put that sin to death. I'm putting on patience instead. And there is a way that we can encourage one another where, again, you start to see these little but tangible proofs, tangible vital signs of faith, of hope, and love in concrete productive reality. Let's not deny each other that joy or the comfort and strength that it brings. So Paul doesn't look back to a prayer that these guys prayed in the past. He looks to what they're doing in the present, and the encouragement is for us to do the same. If we do see these vital signs, there's one last thing to see briefly. This is the second point, the vital practice thanksgiving to God. We see in verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, why does he say that? It's a strange thing to say in a sense. Think about it this way. Let's say, let's say Paul Reese buys me, I don't know, like an Audi Q7. Um, and I go to the office and I thank Martin Smith for it. I say, Martin, thank you so much. Now, you might think that's really odd because Paul is the one who's given it to me. Now, What's happening in this passage is that the, Paul is, is going to God and saying, thank you for what I've seen in the productive, labor-intensive, blood, sweat, and tears of the Thessalonians. He's not going to them and saying, oh, thank you. This is great. You're do Why thank God? 
unless he's the one who has produced this in them? Why thank God unless he is the one who by his grace has fanned into flame in them these definitive marks of true Christianity, faith, hope, and love. God is a decisive cause in this work that's taking place through them. That's why he says, we thank God for your work. We see this, of course, in other passages in the Bible. Philippians 2, for example. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's our hard work. It's effort put into that. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So, brothers and sisters, whatever faith is identifiable in, in us, whatever love that we demonstrate, whatever endurance we, we can see in each other and appreciate in one another, it is God's doing and the glory belongs to him. So let's take just 60 seconds just now in the quietness to think about what you see as evidence of these vital signs in your own life, in the lives of those around you. Take a few moments to offer a couple of thank yous to God for he's worthy of our thanksgiving. And I'll lead us in prayer and then we'll join together in song.